Hi everyone, this is Hita Unnikrishnan for the In Common podcast, a show that explores the careers and research of academics and practitioners studying relationships between humans and the environment. In this episode, I spoke with my colleague Professor Abdul Malik Simon, a senior professorial fellow at the Urban Institute of the University of Sheffield. As often happens in academic workplaces, this conversation was one of the first times we've interacted with each other beyond social niceties to discuss some of the critical and pioneering urban scholarship that Malik has been engaged with over the last several decades. We spoke of his early life in pre-independent Sierra Leone and its influence on his thinking. We discussed his subsequent move from Freetown to Chicago alongside his shift from pursuing psychology to engaging in developmental practice. Malik mentions in the interview that his focus on the urban was an organic one and which stemmed from his work in psychology, the developmental sector, as well as what he describes as a long foray into radical politics. We discussed how his interpretation of the urban seeks to explain the gaps in conventional definitions of what the urban means, particularly from the perspective of African cities where he noticed that there was a way in which urban economies were being elaborated to address a population that was being urbanized through their own efforts to provide for each other and oftentimes in situations that were new to them. We spoke about blackness and black thought of the field known as Black Studies and its slight parallels with African studies. As an urbanist, Malik has been particularly influenced by Black notions of locality, the extended idea of the locality rooted within particular histories of the predominantly US-based plantation system. He spoke about how Black inhabitants of a plantation had to, within the context of their own subjugation, develop tools and techniques to realize a sense of locality that extended beyond the immediate physical space, and how this notion of an extended locality helped the emergence of processes sustaining a Black collective life. We then spoke of the limits of using Black thought as a methodological approach, particularly focusing on the caution one has to exercise so that the usage of these knowledge systems does not reinforce the horrific forms of subjugation that it emerged from. Essentially, the question we asked ourselves was, how do we use knowledge that has stemmed from experiences that are not ours and never will be? Malik also reflected that if we do not use knowledge that has been put out to the world in those circumstances, it seems as if one is continuing the very forms of subjugation that those knowledge systems have always been subjected to. We then moved to discuss his latest book, The Surrounds, which refers to those relational, improvised and interstitial spaces which accompany the formal urban as we know it. We discussed the idea of the surrounds in the context of changing and reconfigured relationships people build with ecological commons, especially in contexts where their access to formerly important spaces becomes restricted as a result of other urban agendas. We also discuss how the book contrasts the idea of home and work, especially from the perspective of marginalized communities for whom the home is not a place of settlement, rather it's a place of transient thinking, for whom work may not represent stability, but rather a confinement that restricts their ability to engage with the city. I particularly enjoyed this conversation as it helped me think through aspects of critical urban scholarship in ways that I've not been trained to do so and draw reflections on how those ideas may apply to my own work. Thank you so much, Malik. Um, really happy that you could join me today in this conversation. I was thinking to begin our conversation, let's chat a bit about your trajectory so far in terms of what got you interested in what you're doing. Uh, so I was reading an old interview of yours where you mentioned that your interest in writing about African cities came from spending a large part of your childhood in Sierra Leone. 
Uh, could you sort of tell us a bit about those experiences and how they've shaped your thinking? I mean, living living in 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 Freetown during the time prior to independence um, was a time of both a lot of a lot of volatility, a lot of tensions, a lot of generative anticipations on the part of people living there, um, a recognition on the part of some that the way in which they were dealing with things was now coming to an end. Um, within a town, well, town, city, a town in, in many respects that was really both very tightly and almost conservatively organized in many respects, uh, but also a town, city growing rapidly, full of people who didn't really know what living in an urban situation was and trying to figure that out and with a great deal of experimentation. And then, and then being part of a, of a family that was largely on the run themselves and in a kind of provisional position without a lot of money, uh, not being able to live a kind of conventional expatriate life like other white people up in the hills. It was an atmosphere of all different kinds of people trying to figure things out in their own way. Um, and so this sense of figuring, of improvising, of listening, of trying to see different kinds of connections when the old connections that people relied upon weren't really working uh, was a kind of atmosphere as a kid that one sort of learns about having to make do and having to always sort of see things in a in a different way not relying too much upon what you've been told and not relying too much upon what you've learned in in the past so i think that's probably the greatest impact right um you mentioned that uh your family was on the run and people were generally, you know, um, having a certain amount of uh, generative anticipation, you called it. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about that. Well, I mean, the, the thing was, is that my, my, my own family had immigration problems uh, and uh, Sierra Leone was not a not a, a choice other than the fact that there were some relatives there that provided a kind of operational context for a while, while um, the long arduous process of regularization in relationship to the US uh, took place. Um, that regularization finally occurred somewhere in the mid-1960s, which was another particular turbulent time in another context. Um, 
So it was going from Freetown to the south side of Chicago. Um, but I, I had always spent summers with my, my, my grandfather who lived in Detroit anyway. So it wasn't that I was completely removed from the US. There were the obligatory visits and um, yeah, so that was that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this interview that I uh, was reading went on to mention that you were pursuing a degree in psychology from White um, White College uh, when you shifted towards development practice um, as your focus. And I was just curious as to how that came about, how that shift in trajectories and when you began to start thinking of the urban, what made you start thinking of the urban as your focus um, as an academic and so on? Well, I mean, I started, I, 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 I lived on my, I've lived on my own since I was quite young. So my, my first job was working for an NGO that was involved in sort of providing technical assistance to one of those, one of those federal programs that thought that you, you deal with um, black impoverishment by enabling single mothers to purchase a home. And uh, the idea that through the acquisition and the maintenance of property uh, and having an asset that this will rectify many different kinds of things. But anyway, it was a job. It was my first job. And, uh, and so I learned a lot, though, about housing law and about how municipal agencies work and about the sort of relationship between, you know, so-called marginal communities and, and urban systems. Um, but then there was a kind of, at the same time, a kind of long foray into radical politics. Um, and, um, and I, I didn't, I didn't have much of a formal, formal education, and um, and so the 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 venture into psychology was more pragmatic. It was at that moment um, a kind of discipline that, in some respects, was open to different kinds of backgrounds and different kinds of unconventional trainings, and so this is what was accessible to me and and so i i pursued it for for a while and um and became fairly good at it but yeah the, the, there were other things that were also on my mind and and in my interest um so i mean um really how did the urban then come to become a focus of uh, the work that you do well, I mean, to a certain to a certain extent, it was it to a certain extent it was always always there, um, and the and the particular um, the particular practice within psychology that that I that I specialized in uh, was one that was working with large social networks of uh, acutely. Uh, psychotic uh, patients and so the the objective was to try to keep people out of hospitals and to try to build then a kind of functional platform of support amongst the kinds of networks that they had accessible to them um, 
And that also coincided with, with uh, a particular moment within mental health work, which in some ways focused on the coordination of different kinds of institutions. So you just don't have mental health clinics and psychiatric hospitals, but you, you work with the police, you ride with the police, uh, you, you liaise with the court system, um, with social services. So there was a moment, particularly within New York at that time, where you had a, what was known as sort of unified health service system, which was much more holistic, much more network-based. And, and that was predominantly ur urban. It's a kind of urban, urban process. Um, so then in, in when I, after, after, after graduate school, after practicing for a while, I mean, I, I had a lot of experiences um, working in African cities. Um, the focus was not so much urban based, but in order to pursue these projects, one had to, now, for example, having to try to develop a kind of alternative school system in, in Abidjan meant that one had to really engage the, the specificities of the urban, urban processes in, at, at, at work. Um, and so increasingly by having taught at different African universities, those universities often being on strike, often being shut down, never paying enough to have a, have a kind of livable wage. One had to also supplement that with other kinds of work. And so then there was a much more systematic emphasis on urban, urban development work. Um, and then gradually as, as, acquired more experience in this, the, the disciplinary shift was pretty definitive. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's a very interesting trajectory as well, right? I mean, something that you just said about how development practice looks at women owning assets as a way to give them emancipation of sorts is very resonant with me as well as an Indian. Because that's one of the ways in which the government actively tries to promote women's welfare. Uh, I mean, all of that happens, but eventually the patriarchy still remains. So, um, yeah, it, it kind of resonated a lot with me. But now that we're talking about the urban, um, it seems to me, as I'm kind of reading your work, that the urban seems to sort of signify simultaneously structure, form and process as well as an individual or a collective. So there are all these different facets that come out um, in in sort of, at least to my reading of, of uh, the work that you've done. It also seems to draw a bit on the idea of planetary urbanism, right, which is uh, the recognition that urbanization or its influence reaches, supported by every corner of the planet, not necessarily confining itself to what we recognize as a city. Now, that's a slightly different take on urbanization from the more let's say, conventional view that urban refers to built infrastructure or sprawl or, you know, those various categorizations that we have of, of uh, calling binary categorizations that we have of calling something urban or not urban. So I was just wondering if I could uh, prod you to sort of elaborate a bit on on that idea of the urban that seems to come out in, in, in uh, your work. 
Well, back in back in the, back in the day, in 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 the work that uh, a number of us were doing with um, uh, community associations and NGOs, uh, doing urban work across different African cities, uh, the kind of tag that we often used was. Uh, how to be urban without urbanization, um, which in some ways doesn't seem to make to make sense, but in some ways what we what we were trying to to get at was that um, the kinds of conventional definitions of urbanization only went so far in terms of trying to account for what were definitely urban urban situations. And by that I mean that if if those kinds of conventional notions of urban urbanization talk about um, the relationship with with industrialization, uh, with agglomeration, uh, with uh, with density, uh, with synergistic relationships between, different modes of production, different kinds of circuits of accumulation and wealth production, uh, that there was something about the urban within many different African contexts, which wasn't necessarily a, a complete divergence from those conventional terms but was a way in, in which uh, urban economies uh, were being elaborated to address uh, a population that was in some sense being urbanized through its own efforts to try to provide for each other in a situation that was oftentimes, again, relatively new for them. So that in some ways you, that, the, that that the, 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 there was also a density of aspirations, a density of backgrounds, a density of different practices, a density of reciprocities and complementarities, a density of mutual indebtedness, a density of different kinds of people reaching out toward each other, um, that in some ways, accomplished an atmosphere or, or a kind of, or, or a real operation of, of urbanization, even though there might not be any industrialization in sight, even though there might not be any discernible way in which things are being produced. I mean, things were oftentimes being produced, maybe, uh, artisanally, or maybe in ways that were attributed to hundreds and perhaps thousands of small workshops. But there was, it did demonstrate that you could have particular urban formations in, through multiple trajectories and logics, which some might argue approximate those of the kinds of logistics and, and industrializations of traditional urban space, but seem to fall aside and 
and also then create a kind of opportunity to rethink about how you sustain that, how you make it generative outside the kinds of vernaculars and, and processes that usually are brought to bear in terms of what sustainability, what productivity is. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's an observation that especially comes in from cities of the global south, right, as they are sort of uh, progressing towards the more conventional ideas of urban, you know, just seeing those processes is, uh, is uh, very important. Your work is also very deeply influenced by black studies and particularly the use of blackness as a method, um, drawing on, say, for example, the work of Catherine McKittrick and others, uh, as you mentioned in the book. Um, I'm keen to sort of unpack this a little bit. Uh, can we just talk a bit about blackness or black thought itself? So what constitutes that? Was something count as black thought when it comes from a black person? Is there something more to it? Um, and then probably talk a little bit more about, about the method itself. But uh, And I guess this is coming from the perspective of a person who is A, new to this field, but also for listeners who who have completely no idea about these uh, aspects of critical urban uh, spaces, so studies, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there, 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 there probably is no such thing as black thought in a univocal way. I mean, there is a long tradition, particularly within the US and to some extent Britain of, of black studies. Uh, of trying to consolidate and systematize the, the contributions of particularly black thinkers and activists uh, reflecting on the conditions and potentialities of black people within the various, various dispositions of, of, di of diaspora. Um, which sometimes does have consonance with more conventional African studies, but not necessarily. Um, and so, of course, black thinking by black scholars is very heterogeneous. It's full of, of contestations and antagonisms and collaborations, just like any other kind of framework of of thought, but what 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 particularly what particularly appeals to me as an urbanist in trying to think through urbanization processes um, are specifically black notions of locality, uh, of extensions um, that are rooted within particular histories. And primarily that of the, and primarily that of of, of the of the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, given given the 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 plantation system, uh, which was the the mode and the context of, of of black inhabitation for the most part throughout U.S. history, um, the 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 notion of locality, the, the densities of locality, 
were in some ways brutal, violent, and untenable. The ways in which the proximity between the black inhabitants of the plantation and the white inhabitants of the plantation and the disparity of power, the, the inability of black inhabitants of the plantation to see them, to act as the property of themselves, you know, to possess themselves as an individual agency being able to exert free will and being available to all kinds of intimacies, intimacies which in some ways collapse the distinction between violence and sex and exploitation and labor and generosity and makes in some ways that notion of locality un untenable. So then what does become locality? What does become the possibilities of proximity through touch, through... And in that way, Black inhabitants had to rely upon modes of locality, modes of touching, modes of connection that would extend beyond the kind of practices of communication that we are usually familiar with and available to us in order to form a locality, in order for there to be a kind of social unit that is in some kind of physical proximity to each other and able to exist as a kind of viable form of the social. So in some ways, this notion of developing tools and techniques to realize a sense of locality extending beyond the kind of immediate physical space was something that was always really important in terms of, of, um, of black inhabitation within the context of the, in the context of the plantation. At the, at the end of slavery or as more, or as forms of quasi, not full, but quasi-emancipation took place. You then had the, you had the dispersal of, of, of Black families, individuals across different sites, different cities. And so how do you, how, how did you, in some ways, form a kind of viable sense of collective life through this kind of dispersal, uh, through the distribution of bodies across different kinds of sites? And how were these collective lives also organized and distributed to be able to have a position on different facets of American policing? That is, the way in which Black extended families often distributed its members across different positionalities so that they would know exactly what would take place in the church, in the prison, in the university, in the schools, in the mayor's office. So there is in some sense a kind of process of formation of, of Black collective life that was quite accomplished in terms of its ability to function within this kind of extended notion of, of locality. I mean, of course, under, under conditions of extreme subjugation, it often didn't work. 
there always have been fractures, there's always been breaks, there's always been dissipations. And so not to, not to romanticize this, but it is, the, it is particularly these, these elements, you know, I mean, to, I mean, when Fred Moten says to, to, to not consent to being a single being, there is a way in which the ability to operate outside the terms of property, outside the terms of individualized self-agency, the ability to operate within what others have might call abyssal situations where there's no ready vernacular, no available terms, no map, no real sense of how you proceed. And yet you have to invent those very terms of endurance. Um, these are kinds of processes and issues that have been important to certain articulations of, 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 black, of black thought. And so applied to, to urban processes, it, it, it constitutes a kind of different lens, a different lens to see how things are connected, how things shape each other, um, how bodies that are individualized, uh, think of themselves as property. You know, this notion of, 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 of freedom, individual freedom, being to manage oneself as if it is property, to always develop it, to protect it, to defend it, and its impact on the kinds of potentialities of the social. You know, how to get out of those kinds of frames. And so in some ways there are, this is the, some of the instances in which black thought provides a kind of different point of reference to, to understand urban, urban processes. Coming back to our discussion on using blackness as a method or a frame of reference, um, I had another question. So using something as a method really brings with it a corollary of sorts, right? When should you not use it? Uh, and the reason I'm asking this is because these days I'm sort of immersed in readings around intersectional perspectives, which obviously, as you know, has its roots in black feminism, right? Uh, and the more I read about it, the more I begin to detect at least two different strands of literature, um, at least. Um, one that uses it as a method for uncovering systematic uh, inequalities, right? Systemic inequalities. Um, and one that cautions against using the concept as a method in ways that implicitly reinforce, uh, you know, the very inequalities that they are meant to uncover, they were intended to uncover and so on, like patriarchy. Would you say something similar about using blackness as a method? So when does one use it? Do you have to have a certain identity or a certain geographical location to be able to use, uh, legitimately use blackness as a method? Uh, or are we referring to, or are we metaphorically referring to something that could be marginal? I'm, I'm trying to sort of unpack how one uses blackness as a method in ways that do not reinforce some of the very uh, horrific things that, that those experiences have stemmed from in a certain sense. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is the, you know, this is a critical, critical question. And one that always is a kind of challenge in terms of, of how to ethically and uh, judiciously engage 
the work that emanates from experiences that are not yours and never will be yeah. yours. But, uh, so one, one always has to abide by that, um, by that impossibility. Uh, at the same time, uh, as an urbanist, uh, wanting to be as precise uh, about what's going on and also with certain kinds of aspirations about what the urban could be mm. for everyone, I think one has to also draw upon the knowledge that has been put out into the into the world and to find ways to as respectfully use it uh, as one can in one's work emancipation for 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 all and that emancipation doesn't doesn't isn't anchored within the same kinds of conditions for everyone hmm. It doesn't take the same form as for everyone, but in some respects, every everyone does in their own way express a desire for a better and different kind of a different kind of life, and how to bring that and how to bring that uh, about. I mean, because in some ways, the black study and black thought doesn't only address the the exigencies of, of, of Black life. Uh, it has a lot to say about what it means to be human. Um, and particularly the work of someone say like Sylvia Winter, who in some ways has written at great length about the different philosophical and political underpinnings of what it, of what the human could be perhaps what it should be um, is doesn't just address the conditions of, of, of black people, but of, of 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 every of everyone. But you're right. I mean, you 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 certainly can't speak on the behalf of a particular people in an in historical situation. But what has been produced by those people and by that historical situation as a contribution to human knowledge in general and urban knowledge in particular, if it is not turned to, if it is not used, then it seems to continue mm -hmm. the very form of subjugation that uh, has continued to exist. True, true. Yeah, and that was an inherent tension that I had as well when I was reading these uh, things on intersectionality. What, you know, there is a strand of caution, but there is also this recognition that if you don't bring that knowledge out um, to see the day, to see daylight in a certain sense, it's, it's still propagating the very forms of sub subjugation, as you mentioned, that, um, that it has always faced. And yeah, and, and thank you for sort of uh, articulating that so clearly. Um, this sort of brings me to the focus of your latest book, which is a surrounds. Um, can you talk a bit about how that particular project came about? Well, I mean, it 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 it's 
it it started with uh, in in the context of um, many of my my friends and uh, cherished interlocutors engaging and thinking about notions of of ab abolition, um, and so it was it started originally it's it started as a way to think about the relationship of urbanization and and abolition and in some ways was a, a kind of continuation of the prior book on on improvised lives uh, which tried to tried to think through I mean using Catherine McKittrick's notion of the uninhabitable uh, but then using the notion of the uninhabitable as a way to think about urban processes that basically are not for us. That is, there's something about the urban that is doesn't simply rely upon or constitute an affordance or an impediment for, for human inhabitants. So the uninhabitable was trying to amplify those aspects of the urban, which are perhaps indifferent to us, that in some ways constitute a kind of field or of, of, of operations that we certainly are involved with and contribute to, but also exceed whatever that we that we we do. And that within that kind of context, the kinds of practices that we then are often compelled to do in order to live through that are improvisatory. Yeah. This notion of Im improvisation and drawing upon the kinds of practices from music as a way to think that through. So, in some ways, the surrounds is a is a is a is a continuation of that. I I in starting to prepare the kinds of lectures that were the basis of the of the book, I kind of circumvented the notion of of, of ab abolition directly but I wanted to think about well what what if if abolition is a kind of possibility if it is something that constitutes a kind of viable horizon then in in what ways is abolition always already a condition of the present what is it is, is there some, that is, in order for abolition to take place, it seems to me it necessitates a sense that to a, to a certain extent, abolition is already here. It's already a kind of imminent, imminence within, within the present. Something abolition of? Well, abolition being the sense that abolition being the 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 locus of a of emancipation uh out of the out of the out of the prison house of of race out of the prison house of uh injustice out of the prison house of such great disparities in terms of access in terms of power um abolition being the end of capitalism i mean it it's you know, but it becomes this kind of 
this, the, you know, as, as, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, the kind of imperative to change everything and the possibility that everything can be, can be changed. Um, so I wanted to think about what are the kinds of moments and spaces within present urban conditions that exist within a capture, with a, which are captured by the prevailing logics of, of, of racialization, of anti-Blackness, of inequality, uh, of exclusion, uh, of evisceration, but which somehow also moments in spaces that are not touched by those things as well. Yeah. Uh, or are not predominantly characterized by by them, and and in thinking through this, it was much more much less a kind of not. I mean, although the surrounds can be sort of heterotopic, that there 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 can be sort of places that we identify as somehow ambiguous, as overdetermined, as vacuums as un places not clear exactly what they are and what they're doing i was much less interested than in in those kinds of architectures than i was in a particular kind of relationship between human agency uh, and its and its surrounds a kind of orientation, a kind of way of being, a kind of attitude, a kind of uh, a kind of inclination, a way in which particular kinds of moments and, and spaces are produced that somehow embody within them, even momentarily, a, a, a sense of extending beyond this kind of dynamic of of freedom confinement, freedom confinement, because the two are so entangled with each other that in some ways it is a kind of trap. So, you know, how to exist outside the kind of confines of that kind of, of, the, of those kinds of binaries. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading, reading the surrounds, um, I was also struck by but one of the places that immediately sprung to mind really was the experience of passport renewal uh, as an Indian. And I was struck by how he was saying that these spaces, um, that sort of, at least to my less refined mind, uh, hover between the formal and the informal, tending towards one or the other, depending on circumstances, you know, that's that's how I came to read the surrounds really. Um and that mentioned that these are in relation to something, right? And I was wondering if that relation, relational aspect of it sort of transcends geography in a certain way, because I mean, the for example, the experience of renewing a passport in India is exactly the same as the ex experience of renewing a passport in the UK, an Indian passport in the UK, as in you go in with pre carefully prepared documents and everything. But uh, once you go there, inevitably, there is a, there is something that is missing. And then you're directed to this massive infrastructure of informal spaces, what they characterize informal spaces, which actually tell you, you know, uh, oh, do you need a document? What kind of document do you need? Or do you uh, do you want a printout? Here's a 
huge infrastructure for printing and you know uh so in a sense they're not formal they're not informal but they sort of tend between the two depending on on the context and the experience of the person inhabiting that space right um and i was wondering if this sort of relational aspect is like i said it's not confined to a geography or a spatial location but rather that it transcends it i was i was just wondering if you had any thoughts there i mean it is the um I mean, uh, the 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 philosopher, literary critic uh, Ronald Judy, when he talks about the poesis of blackness, mm. he talks about the way in which different registers impact upon each other. Different, very discrepant registers impact upon each other, not in terms of any synthesis, but always this process of moving things along. Mm, mm. creating these kinds of momentary co constellations that are fluid and in, in, and in movement. So for example, if you, if you take, take a ministry, you know, take a ministry of, uh, of, of sanitation and, and water uh, that is supposed to in some ways exert some kind of supervisory overview of, a, of an infrastructure that, you know, proceeds by very sort of clear procedures and dynamics. And, uh, and you look at what that ministry is. And so the ministry is, is, is its documents, its proclamations, its policies, it's the particular background of the technicians who serve uh, a minister who may or may not have a background in this thing, may be connected politically to the ruling party. The ministry is all of the kinds of appearances that particular staff make at different functions. They have to use a car to commute. Uh, their diaries full of meetings with obscure people. There's, there's being stuck in traffic on the way from one meeting to another. There's an office where sometimes the air conditioning will go off. Uh, there are there are thousands and thousands of discrete events which are that take place within that that ministry. Yet it it continues to repeat itself according to its own procedures, its own guidelines, its own rituals. But at any moment that which it is composed of, which are all those different kinds of elements, may, may alter their relationship to each other and alter the potentials of what that ministry might be capable of on any, on any given, given day. So the functioning of any frame, the functioning of any institution, the functioning of any form is in some ways the convergence of all kinds of discrepant events which momentarily might coalesce in ways that are able to reproduce themselves and endure, but at their fundamental basis can be altered perhaps at any moment and do something completely different in terms of a, of a disposition or, 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 an, in, or an inclination. That's why, the, that's why my, the, my, my interlocutors in Kinshasa who, you know, try to read the market, you know, who at the end of the day went into a market where every, most of the people have been selling the same stuff 
year after year, getting the, the supply from the same place year after year, that somehow at the end of the day, when there was this need to try to eke out some extra income, that they at that moment were amenable, they were open, they were vulnerable mm. to having their role, their position read actively in a kind of different, different way. So all of a sudden, goods move in unanticipated ways. People that perhaps never had spoken to each other speak, speak to each other. Right. Uh, so in some ways, this is the the the, the surrounds are are relational in 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 that sense. It says yes, things are anchored. Yes, things are frozen. Yes, things are ruled. Yes, things find themselves reified, enduring power relationships. But the very composition of those things, the very compositions of all of those kinds of forms and frames and institutions is in some sense uh, precarious or is in, in some sense so complexly composed mm. that at least there's the potential of a certain kind of operational rearrangement, the possibility of rearrangement that opens up the field to completely different kinds of, 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 dis, of dispositions. When I was reading that and when I'm listening to you, the one thing that I get reminded of is uh, a lot of my previous work before joining Sheffield was on Bangalore. Uh, well, a bit after joining Sheffield as well. Uh, and I worked on the lakes of Bangalore, which were, which were, you know, what we call common pool resources. And what I did was try to look at how this, this uh, relationship between people and the lake has changed over time, say from between the 1700s to uh, to today. And in walking through the city in that context, I come across some of these spaces which have been repurposed from one form of commons into another form of commons. Uh, an example is every lake would have something called a temple tank, which is this like, like step well structure, right, which which would store water for religious purposes or for other communal activities and so on. Usually very ordinate structures, steps and pillars and carvings. And it's, it's beautiful it's, and, it's, and it's massive. And uh, usually associated with some temple. And I still remember going to one of these places where uh, the water element of it was completely removed. So they'd filled it in because people were drowning and it was not kept clean and so on. Uh, but then the idea of the commons was retained by activities people would use that space as uh you know somewhere where people could teach karate or judo or some form of martial arts there would be dance festivals there would be community festivals where you know uh where people would get together and celebrate something or uh it was just a playground for the school children and, and so in a sense it's a very interstitial space like like you were saying, and it was not, at that point of time, it was not formally recognized. Uh, it was just a way the community came together. So I guess, I guess it's that sense of transitioning that you're referring to, right? Like, it's not, it's not just a geographical or spatial location. It's, it's, again, the experiences, the individual, the collective, the process that binds them all together. Would, am I making sense in terms of my interpretation of the surrounds? Yeah. 
I mean, Sally, Sally Benjamin, who also worked some does work on 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 those very lakes, you know, but will talk about the way in which the the kinds of the spatial defenses of resident associate middle class residents associations that now have claimed land on developed land within this lake region instigated within other villagers a rearrangement of their own relationship with the spirits and now the spirits and the spirits and the inhabitants now had to form new ways of working together in order to concretize what they themselves would do in the spaces they still had access to you know yeah um, so it was in some sense they recognized their vulnerability they recognized the way in which uh the kind of terrain that they once had available was no they no longer had access to but in terms of rearranging the important relationality between them and the kind of spiritual terrain on which they operated um, found different kinds of ways of 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 working and thinking. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it is it is it, it is it is very it is also it is very re relational, even in terms of the the, the an attitudinal relationship with the. With the world, and in, I was saying that in you know what is it what does it mean to to somehow not be so preoccupied with being remembered? Uh, why is what what is our obsession with memory that we want to be recognized that we want to always not be forgotten to not be the forgotten people? And what happens if we switch that? What happens if we become indifferent to the very thing that has bothered us for so for so long? And that's a tricky position because you don't want to give in to oppression. Uh, you don't want to be known as succumbing. But what happens if that moment of indifference permits a certain different kind of perspective and therefore a different kind of possibility of, of, of action? So how can you switch these things around, invert the power that it has over you to discover a kind of back door that you might be able to open to see something something different well, as i was reading this around something else that struck me was the contrast you strike between the idea of home and work in terms of non-marginalized folk for example seeing the home as a space of settlement in a certain sense right and uh, of work as providing a sense of security uh, and of the urban, you draw on the example of Indian migrant workers, for example, um, in, 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 in describing this. But you talk about how work for them is not a sense of security or stability, how the home is, is not a place of settlement. It's a place of transient thinking. Um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that in the, in the context of the surrounds and how people, exp I mean, the other thing you also mentioned is how work can be a form of confinement itself, right? For these people to not experience the city uh, and how chaos like the pandemic, uh, for example, allowed spaces of confinement to open up so that people could sort of experience the city, albeit with a certain amount of trauma involved in the process of experiencing the city. So I, was, I was quite struck by that contrast you strike, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, 
are there are are there intermediary practices and spaces through which we can that we can also inhabit mm. does inhabitation necessarily have to be something that is repeated in a particular place over a particular period of, of, of time so does does dwelling necessarily entail this kind of close proximity to notions of property as something being your place mm. um at the same time one can't be footloose forever one can't just be out in in the world without a kind of sense of anchorage uh one can't be in constant exile or or in constant constant movement but are there what are the places in in between in between and i think that in some ways the the for for many particularly within the south uh the kinds of sacrifices that people have made to acquire a home as some kind of asset as some kind of stabilizing force as some kind of platform as some kind of perspective that the cost has been too high not necessarily economically although that often is the case but the cost in terms of relinquishing particular kinds of sensibilities and skills of negotiation of making things happen and and particularly as the as more and more people are actively ex- extruded from the city without choice and as more and more people seeking more affordable kinds of settings volitionally move to further hinterlands and extended regions there there is increasingly a sense of well what does this what does this mean uh what does this mean in terms of a relationship with the with 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 the city and so can the notion of itinerary that is trying to read the city from multiple points of view which can only be attained through being able to circulate through it in some way to move through it what kinds of infrastructures make that movement possible mm. and so extended families may then distribute themselves according to different kinds of positions the kids over here the uncles over here the parents over here you know so you have these sort of temporary temporary bases and what home is is the possibility of a kind of of a of a of a, a reasonable circulation uh, um, um, amongst them and the same for 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 work um when work becomes increasingly precarious when work becomes increasingly part time uh individualized outside of sort of uh, of of collective responsibilities and collective management beyond the notion of a of a, of a steady wage uh beyond the possibilities of being able to make something but rather work becomes being enjoined in these kinds of expanding platforms mm. of 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 exchange and 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 indebtedness work then like home also 
becomes something that is much more mobile, much more about trying to produce the conditions that will enable you to have access to the kinds of resources that you need in order to sustain a kind of perspective on, on urban regions that are constantly, constantly changing. And also the and also the the refusal of work, the refusal to be a kind of uh, refusal to to participate in activities where it's not clear where work ends and where where work begins, where work is interminable, uh, or that the process of of knowing who you are is simply through this kind of interminable terminal work. So this the emergence of a kind of different different orientation to what the urban has to offer and what the urban urban constrains. And and I think this is, you know, if home and work were the kind of critical elements of social reproduction. When my when my friends, you know, Christina Cello or Veronica Gago talk about extended social reproduction, what they what they mean is is in some ways, how does the act of social reproduction get distributed in in a much wider net of generative relations amongst people with whom you both share a space but also exceed that space. You know, how do you become a citizen of a of a city uh, which is articulated and exemplified through the plurality of different kinds of transactions you can have with different people whose lives you come to share in insignificant ways? True, and I think we've kind of come full circle, right, with the concept of gen- relational generalizations, right here. One former guest on this on this show had told us that one of the biggest biggest advantages of having these conversations is the is the ability to pick someone's brain uninterrupted for an entire hour or so, uh, and have these in depth conversations about about the ways in which different people think and how those those thought processes can come together. So I mean, it's something that stayed with me. He was one of my first guests on the show and. And it's something that stayed with me and it's something that I treasure while doing these um, interviews. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Malik, for uh, for sharing some of those thoughts with us. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you if there is anything that you might want to mention that we have not uh, spoken about so far? No, Hita, no. It's just, it's good to have a conversation with you. We work at the same place, but you <laughs> know, know, rarely have had any kind of conversation so this is really nice i know appreciate it i know thank you so much for doing that as well thank you for listening everyone you can find more episodes as well as a blog on our website incommonpodcast.org in common is the official podcast of the international association for the study of the commons